Turn with me your Bibles to uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We will be um, considering verses 6.10 through 7.14 today. Let me begin with a confession that um, I'm getting ready to preach a sermon and I've thought all week about how adversity is good for us. And I walk in and the air conditioner's not on and I go on full tilt. So <clears throat> I'm not preaching to you, I'm preaching to me too today. So um, <clears throat> we can easily forget these things um, as they um, uh, as they take event as they take place in our lives. And so let's turn our attention to the word. The way this passage is laid out, 6.10 through 7.14, it's like 6.10 through 12 is the introduction. 7.13 7, and 14 is the, is the conclusion. <clears throat> so let's just begin reading in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10. This is God's word. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? <clears throat> a good name is better than precious ointment. In the day of death, than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, and by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is God's word. <clears throat> Again, if you want a, uh, a uh, listening guide, kids, there on the back table. Also, the sermon points uh, are on the back table uh, on the other side uh, of that handout. So if you want one of those. Um, feel free to grab that or grab it on the way out. The first thing that our passage that the preacher tells us in 6, 10 through 12 
is that we don't know what the future holds, nor do we really have any idea what's best for us. But that fact, that fact that we don't know what's best for us and we don't know what the future holds, does not keep us from steering toward the good and away from the bad of life at every single turn of life. But the preacher says in 6.10, look, God's going to do what God's going to do. And it does, good man, no good to dispute with God about it. God is much stronger than him, which is an absolute understatement. That's what he's talking about there in 10. And it's known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he, that one stronger than he is God. Our man Job, he found out what it was like to dispute with God. In Job, Job uh, for the first 37 chapters, Job is is uh, crying out and stating his innocence before the Lord and that God is wrong to do what he's done and he doesn't deserve what's happened to him. And, but beginning in Job 38 through 41, for, for three solid chapters, the Lord answers Job in Job's proclamations of innocence by saying, the Lord begins by saying, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. And then he goes on to say, who, has a, who knows where the storehouses of, uh, of, uh, of snow are? Who in the heavens? Surely you know, Job, don't you? You were there when he created the foundation of the world, right? And goes on and on and on. Just, just God putting Job in his place over and over and over again. And then in Job, finally in Job 40, verse 3, Job answers the Lord for two verses and says behold I'm a man of small account what shall I answer you I lay my hand upon my mouth I've spoken once and I will not answer twice I will proceed no further I'm not going to say any more Lord you've got it you're you're right I was wrong to do what I've done and that's what we see here in Ecclesiastes the preacher's going look don't find fault with God for doing what God's going to do in your life and even if you were given carte blanche in this life to decide what you would, would experience and what you wouldn't experience, the preacher says that if we really thought about it, we don't really know what's good for us. We don't know what's good for man in a life that passes away like a shadow. We don't have the foggiest idea what's best for us. Now, while 6, 10 through 12 is true, that doesn't mean that we can't go to the Lord and lament. We see lament in the Bible. We see petitions in the Bible. We see crying out and asking the Lord to intervene for us. And so um, we've seen uh, both of those warranted in the Bible. But for the purposes of this sermon, the preacher is commending an attitude for us that's pretty remarkable given a, uh, uh, this writer has so little uh, knowledge of the big theological picture. The preacher's point in this passage is we don't have to be fearful of adversity, but rather we should enjoy the good times and see value in the difficult ones we have. And this is possible for us because of our ability to trust in the sovereign God. And so in verses 7-1 through 7-12, he's going to teach us that by going through a list of things that we would not think that are good in life. But he's going to say, no, these things are actually better for you than you realize. And so um, with that as introduction, the first point that we see here in 7.1 through 7.6 is that we shouldn't fear 
suffering or adversity. We should not fear suffering or adversity. He starts by saying a good name is better than precious ointment in the day of death, better than the day of birth. Now, I think we can understand why a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment was a very valuable thing. It was in demand because of its beautiful fragrance among a world that stank, among a world of sheep and animals and sweat and dust. I mean, precious ointment stood out. It was something that got your attention because it smelled far more beautiful than everything else around you. But you could buy precious ointment, but you can't buy a good name. That good name is something that stays with you. It's earned. It provides a, uh, but it can be lost in a moment as well. And so we spend a life preserving a good name. We spend a life nurturing and, and protecting a good name. But unlike precious ointment, a good name can provide a lasting aroma and effect on others that a precious ointment can't. A precious ointment can provide an effect and and admiration among others while you're there. But once you leave, that ointment, that smell and that fragrance is gone. But the aroma of a good name carries on far after you've left. It's still still there. That aroma is still in the nostrils uh, of the person who encounters the man with a good name far more than it does the man with precious ointment. But I do think people would take issue with the second half of the verse, right? The day of death is better than the day of birth. I think this is why these two are related to one another, the good name and the day of death and the day of birth. Babies don't have a good name. There's certainly a promise for them, and there's hope for their lives and the miracle and the wonderment of birth that makes it a glorious day. But on the day of death, you're able to evaluate that life. You're able to see the end of things. You're able to take account of that life on the day of death that you're not able to on the day of birth. There's an old saying that a tree is best measured when it's laid down. Meaning you cut it down and you can count its rings. You can, you can, you can, you can measure it. You can see how long it is and you can really see the grandeur of it where you can't see if it's standing up the same with a life on the day of death you're far more aware of the good name of a person on the day than on the day of death than when they were born so the day of death is better than the day of birth we'll see we'll think about more we'll think more of that in a minute but to follow along those lines about the day of birth day of death in verse 2, he says to, it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why? Because this is the way that every single life, every single one of our lives is going to end. It's going to end in a house of mourning. It's going to end in a house of mourning. Sure, it may end with a potluck lunch, a feast provided by the people of the church, But the account of that occasion is going to be a feast of mourning, a day of mourning. The preacher says that this is the end of all mankind and in the house of mourning, those who still live, those who are left behind, will take it to heart. It reminds us of the end. It serves as a wake-up call for us. 
It's a wake-up call that we can't escape or we can't deny. We must confront the certain end of our lives. John Owen said, Satan's greatest success is in making people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider their eternal welfare. The house of mourning serves as an object lesson that we've seen throughout the book so far. This life and all its goodness isn't all that great. And it isn't to be worshipped. It certainly isn't to be idolized because it's going away. It's like the kids that build a sandcastle on the beach and you see the little kid run to the surf and get a handful of water, handful of seawater, and he runs back to the sandcastle to try to dump it on it. And by the time he runs all that way and he gets there, there's nothing left. There's nothing in his hand anymore. And so he goes and tries to do it again. And every time he tries to come back with water for that sandcastle, it's all gone. It's fleeting. That's the way it is with life. This life is going away. So the prayer of Psalm 90, verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. This is how the Lord answers that prayer for us in the house of mourning. It's not just for the believer, though, that he answers that prayer. It causes likewise the skeptic. The house of mourning causes the skeptic to give pause, to see that this life does have an end and requires us to take an inventory of it. I heard a story from one of you this week about a young atheist friend who had another friend die. And he said that while he didn't believe in heaven, she was a pretty good girl, and so he assumed that she was probably there. She was probably in heaven. Well, the house of mourning reveals the incoherence in our beliefs. The house of mourning requires us to look at these things. And we may say, yeah, I don't believe that, but death can, causes you to confront your beliefs. It causes, the house of mourning causes us to evaluate all kinds of things that the hour of feasting would never, ever facilitate for us. This is why mourning is better than feasting for us. Along those lines, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Laughter here really doesn't mean joy as much as it means to behave in a frivolous manner. So sorrow is better because through it, we're able to see the futility in the finite nature of life. In losing a loved, one, a loved one, we realize that money or possessions won't solve this at all. We can't, nothing we have can solve our sorrow, truly. I remember I heard a mom a long time ago say to a kid who's playing with a BB gun, you be careful and don't shoot your eye out because all the tears in the world won't bring that eye back. And I mean, I don't know why I thought that was so funny, but it's, it's true. There's absolutely nothing you can do to replace that. There's nothing you can do. All the tears in the world won't deal with your sorrow. All, all, the, all the beer, all the, trying, all the movies, all the trying to get your mind off of it will not deal with your sorrow. There's nothing you can do about it in the moment. But here we have this paradoxical phrase at the end of verse 3 that says, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So how can this be so? We've already read that the preacher has tried to make his heart glad through drink or possessions or fame and found it wanting. He said it doesn't satisfy. There's, it doesn't soothe sorrow. But in the sorrow, we are in the exact place 
that God wants us to be. For we can neither, neither turn to the right nor to the left. I'm reminded of David's words in Psalm 139 where he says to the Lord, You hem me in behind and before me and you lay your hand upon me. It's like he's got us stuck in a place that we can have nowhere to turn except to allow the Lord to lay his hand upon us. And this is what sorrow does for us. When we stay in sorrow, that is when the Lord has the ability to deal with our sorrow. At this point, our knowledge of our sovereign Lord is our only comfort. And so we turn to him confident that he alone can meet our needs. As Jesus tells us in, in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they, the one who mourns, shall be comforted. When we bring our, our sorrows to the only one who can actually care for us, within we are truly made glad. We're not salved over in an instant the way the baubles of this world distract us from the way things are. But as Psalm 107.9 says, He satisfies the longing soul, and the longing soul He fills with good things. In this experience, we also learn to treasure the simple pleasures of the moment and live life to the full. Now, it seems like a pretty optimistic thing to think that well, in sorrow, the sadness of face, then our heart is made glad. But in the New Testament, we see sadness and gladness go together. We see this throughout uh, many times uh, in the New Testament. Second Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as we just saw. Matthew 5.4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Luke 6.21, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And as our New Testament reading said, James 1, 2, Consider it pure joy, my friends, when you face trials of many kinds. Pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? At the end of that passage, so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. The preacher talks about the heart of the wise and the heart of the fool here in verse 4. The heart of the wise... He lives with the reality of death in mind. The heart of the wise, he's in the house of mourning. But the heart of the fool seeks to ignore that fact. The fact that death is inevitable. And he chooses the house of mirth. In verse 5, the preacher moves on to say that it is better to hear rebuke than the song of fools. <clears throat> that we run from rebuke. We'd rather hear jokes or small talk or beer drinking songs than to be rebuked. But rebuke points out the incorrect behavior and words in our lives. It's constructive for us. Constructive criticism for our benefit that oftentimes occurs before we can cause significant damage to others. It helps us know ourselves better and provide the opportunity to repent. Proverbs 12.1, whoever loves discipline, loves knowledge. But he who hates reproof is stupid. He who hates reproof is stupid. The preacher, by contrast, says the laughter of fools is like thorns crackling under the fire pot. <clears throat> you know, you grab the, 
the rose thorns or whatever and you get them all together and you, you use that for kindling under the fire pot. It's very sudden when that goes up in flames. It's, it's intense. It produces a lot of attention because there's lots of sparks and there's lots of crackling. But it's just noise. It's not a lot of heat. It's really not going to do much for the pot because it flames out so quickly. That's the laughter of fools for us as compared to the rebuke of the wise. Similar, the laughter or the frivolous behavior of fools is just vanity. It's just vanity. And so we've seen in this passage that suffering and adversity can be good things for us. Which leads to the next section of our passage in verses 7 through 10. We should learn to value the end of things more than we value the beginning. We should learn to value the end of things more than their beginning. Now this passage starts out in a different way than we would think. Verse 7 seems to maybe go with what comes before it. It seems like this passage ought to start with verse 8. But I think verse 7, we begin with the situation that leads to the proverb in verse 8. And so we've already considered the seriousness of oppression. We've thought about it a lot. But in this case, in verse 7, we see that oppression can drive people mad. It can cause even wise people to lose their way. They can become discouraged and in a moment of weakness do something rash or drastic and maybe become, seek to become the oppressor, seek to go on the offensive, to give people a dose of their own medicine, to, to turn around and to, and to become what they despise. Kind of a, if we can't beat them, we'll join them thing. <clears throat> and so oppression can cause even the wise person to go mad. And also the heart of the wise man is not exempt from the temptation of a well-placed, opportunely timed bribe. That's what he says there in verse 7. A bribe corrupts the heart. Even the purest heart can be corrupted by a bribe. This is why Jesus commanded his disciples to watch and to pray that they may not fall into temptation. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore, let everyone who thinks that, they, that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We have a temptation. Temptation is always before us, and we must be careful of it. Just think back over the last few years of people who have either fallen away from the faith or well-known Christians who have had very public moral failings or Christian leaders who have just um, done or said deeply regrettable or stupid things. Think about how many times we've seen people who we placed our trust in fall away or just do things that just are absolutely head-scratching. This is a serious threat for all of us that requires us to, to cling to Christ and cling to His Word, to surround ourselves with accountability and brothers and sisters who are willing to ask us hard questions. This threat requires us to engage in the life of the church and to not just hear the word, but to to do it and hold one another accountable to doing it. This is frankly why the preacher says in verse 8 that it's better that the, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. Why? 
Well, because we just don't know how things are going to turn out for people. We celebrate baptisms, and well, they're important. But we ought to commemorate annually the day of the baptism. I remember Pastor Larry a a month or two ago um, commemorating the day that he was baptized and the day that 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 he he found that the Lord had saved him. He realized that the Lord had saved him. This is a good thing for us to commemorate, and it points us back to the Lord's safekeeping for us, the way that he holds on to us. Think of how much money we spend on weddings and how the public is invited to them, and we spend so much looking forward to that day. Yet the anniversary is something that's just the two of them. We ought to publicly commemorate anniversaries the way that we commemorate weddings. It's one thing to, commit, to celebrate professing your love for another on the day that you've spent so much time planning for that's perfect and you look better than you'll ever look in your entire life. But what about 25 years later when you're 35 pounds heavier and you can't bend over to tie your shoes to go to your anniversary dinner at Sawgrass? The anniversary is far better, is a far more important day That 25-year anniversary is far more important a day than that wedding day is. Incidentally, this is why the day of death is better than the day of birth. I've told this story before, but I remember when Turner was born, I sent out an email to friends and family and co-workers uh, that he was born, and one of my friends responded, Hallelujah, may our Lord be pleased to rescue young Turner from his sin." Now, this sounds like a very strange thing to pray for a kid that's like two hours old, but it's true. Birth represents a life of hope and promise, but at that point, we simply don't know how it's going to turn out. But look at Proverbs 14.32. Turn over there. Look at Proverbs 14.32. Incidentally, I want this to be my... uh, funeral passage proverbs 14 32 the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing but the righteous finds refuge in his death the righteous finds refuge in his death it's so counterintuitive to think of death as a refuge for us people seem to flee death above all things And I'm not saying that we should have a death wish or that we should hurry it along. There's blessing in a long life. But in a very real way, the funeral of a believer is the celebration that the Lord has gotten another pilgrim home safely. And if you know God's word and your soul very well at all, you know that this life is replete with all kinds of sinful traps for the eyes, for the belly, for the mind, for the body, and for the heart. Now, while we know that Jesus thanked the Father that not one has ever been snatched from his grip and that no one can be, no one, we can't, we can't wrestle ourselves away from Christ. And we're truly comforted by that. But we're also aware of the parable of the soils, aren't we? We know firsthand the propensity of our hearts to be to be uh, that worn path where the word falls on it. It may, fall on, it may be falling on the worn path today. 
And you go, yep, I've heard nothing new today. I know all this. Teach me something new. And so the, the enemy just steals it away, and it doesn't produce any fruit at all. We know all too well the rocky soil where we receive it with joy. But then the temptation and tribulation comes from, and trials come from the world, and it proves unfruitful. And we know firsthand also the thorny soil and how the cares of this world wrap around our legs and try to keep us from from walking in faith. All of this will prove many people unfruitful. And so we come to find along with the preacher the joy and the comfort of death where the hymns we have sung for decades finally come true. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far and grace will lead me home. We celebrate God's grace to the believer in bringing them home at the funeral of a Christian. Think of God's patience with you. Think of the patience God has exhibited with those who in several decades of life he's he's not destroyed and finally brings them to himself at, at an old age. Think of the patience that God has exhibited with people that we see in all walks of life who are struggling with sin even today, but who are still believers. That leads us to the preacher's next comment in the last half of verse 8 and in verse 9. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Would those closest to you be more likely to characterize your spirit as one of patience or pride? If you don't know, ask. Remember, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Yes, but John, you don't understand the nonsense that I have to deal with, either at home or in my marriage or at work. You don't understand. I've got a right to be angry. First off, repent. Just don't even open your mouth. I'd direct your comments back to uh, 610. Are you going to dispute with God? The more words, the more vanity, and your justification is going to be of no advantage to you. Consider how long-suffering and patient God has been with you, even in this moment, for not judging you by the same standard that you're judging others. James 1.20, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Nor does hiding anger, but deviously setting people up in your life to, to fail or to fall into a trap of your own design. God does not do that with you. God does not set traps for you. Don't set traps for loved ones. Don't be quick to anger or quick to plot or scheme, but shepherd those entrusted to you being patient, pointing them to Christ, modeling the grace of God. <clears throat> Finally, in verse 10, because, of the end of, because the end of things is better than the beginning, don't say, why were the former days better than these? Don't, um, <clears throat> don't say, man, why can't we get back to the good old days? I wish we could just get back to the good old days, man. What does that sound like to you? To me, it sounds like Numbers 11, 5 and 6. 
Oh, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt and it, that cost us nothing and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there's nothing at all but this manna to eat. But what's interesting is if we look at the Passover meal, what did they eat? They had unleavened bread and what? Bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. Why did they eat bitter herbs? To remind them of what they ate in Israel and in Egypt. <clears throat> oh, the food in Egypt, that cost us nothing. It cost you nothing but your lives for hundreds of, for hundreds of years. And right, Pharaoh tried to kill you and make you and subject you to forced labor and make you build all of these bricks with no straw, but yet he laid out this Las Vegas buffet for you every day of all you could eat of melons and fish and leeks and garlic and cucumbers. No, it was bitter herbs. You misremember, you romanticized the days of old. The times you thought were great weren't that great. Stop looking back for your hope and spending all your time trying to get back to the past. And instead, raise your faces and find hope in the end. <clears throat> Roger Wybrey, a commentator on this passage, says, <clears throat> To complain about the degeneracy of the times is to show a lack of patience and self-control, which is the mark of a fool rather than a wise man. Now let me say, every single one of us is struggling with this. Every single one of us is struggling with this. If we're saying, man, I wish we could get back to the good old days. Why, why were they so much better than today? The preacher says, it's not wisdom that's causing you to ask this question. Verse 10. And speaking once again of the wise man, in verses 11 and 12, we find our next point. Leave an inheritance of wisdom behind rather than money. <clears throat> Leave an inheritance of wisdom. This translation in 11 is a little bit hard to figure out. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, but most commentators say wisdom is as good as an inheritance. And so when we think of inheritance in the Old Testament, we should think of land. That's what they got. They got land. <clears throat> you remember when they came into the promised land, the land was divided among the tribes and then it was apportioned out amongst the families and the tribes. And um, the ownership of that land ran with the family. And so if one family member got it, it was passed on to subsequent generations. Even if it was sold or leased because of debt, the year of Jubilee was returned to the original family. So the inheritance ran with the family. Think of wisdom in the same way. Wisdom runs in the family. So work hard to provide for your family an inheritance. You work hard to provide your family with an inheritance now. But work hard to make sure it is an inheritance of wisdom. Consider wisdom, leaving behind wisdom, as much as you consider leaving behind money. This leads us back to the patience and anger thing. <clears throat> do you want to instill and pass wisdom on to your children? Or do you just want them to 
obey and act right in the moment. You may think, does it have to be, does it have to be one or the other? No, but if we want to instill wisdom in our kids, this requires the long view. It requires patience. It requires conversation. It requires hugs. It requires coaching. It requires gentleness. It requires consistency. It requires an approach that has the long view in mind and not just to get a moment of silence right now. When your approach is stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about, that may achieve a goal in the next two minutes, but it's not giving them an inheritance of wisdom. The preacher says that wisdom is like money and that it protects the one who has it. Money can protect you from hardship like famine or it can even protect you from unemployment or even disaster. But wisdom has an advantage over money because in verse 12 it says wisdom can preserve life. Wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. And we've already seen in our previous studies that wisdom can't make your life longer than God ordained, has already ordained it to be. <clears throat> but preservatives don't keep something from dying. Preservatives keep something from rotting. And so wisdom can keep a life from rotting. As we've seen, this life is difficult, and it comes with great sorrow, and it comes with disappointment. <clears throat> but wisdom enables the person to stand in the midst of it and to not be crushed by life's disappointments. Not to be crushed by the difficulties, but instead to find the joy in the journey of life and leaning on the perspective that we see here that we've considered today. Now, this isn't talking about eternal life. We've already talked about how the preacher hasn't observed eternal life, so he he really doesn't speak to it very much, though he does seem to be confident in it. It will be several centuries before we hear of another preacher come and talk about eternal life and that's Jesus Christ Jesus said in John 17 3 and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent Jesus came so that we may know God we may know our creator and his perfect law but knowing that law would only lead to a further despair and hopelessness for us far greater than the despair and hopelessness that the preacher uh, here speaks of. It's despair and hopelessness because if we really know the law, we know that offending and rejecting a holy eternal God would demand from us rebels an eternal penalty. Because we know that we're incapable of keeping that law. And Jesus showed us that. Jesus showed us that the law was far more stringent than we ever imagined or realized. And Jesus is the only one who kept it. And it drove people mad. Jesus came to live this life perfectly. That you and I were created and commanded to live, but didn't. And Jesus lived it perfectly to provide for us a righteousness that we could never provide for or or attain for ourselves. And he suffered death on behalf of anyone who would ever turn from their sin and the foolishness of this life and trust in Christ. And he fully paid the penalty that we could never, ever pay that our sin deserves. And Jesus rose from the dead, which not only proved that he was who he said he was, but it also proved that there is life, there is eternal life after this. And there is eternal hope for those who place their hope in Christ. 
John 11, 25 and 26 said, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they will die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. So in verses 13 and 14, where does this leave us? In 13, it says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, we've seen this before in 115, where we kind of started with this idea in 610. This is the way God has made things. And there's not a, one thing anybody can do about it. Your, your, you know, your protests and your complaints to the Lord about your life is not going to change things. This is the work of the sovereign God, who in wisdom ordained your days for your good and has ordained your days for his glory. So in verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. The preacher has shown us how we can do that in the first half of this book. But in the day of adversity, God has made those days too. He never said they're not going to be as bad as you think they are. He doesn't pull any punches regarding their difficulty. He says, no, they're going to be rough. But be patient in them. For on that last day, you will find that those days were better for you than the days you got dressed up for and spent your days pining away for. When you can't trace God's hand, trust God's heart. And we've read in verse 14 that you may not find out what comes after you. We learned that in 314, that God has done what he's done without letting know what comes next. Why? So that we may fear him. So that we may fear him. And fearing the Lord, well, that's the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Let's pray. Father God, forgive us for spending every single day thinking we know what's best for us. Father, we confess that as I confessed at the beginning of the sermon that we are easily thrown off our game. Lord, I feel like Jonah who's complaining of you taking away the vine Father, we love our comfort very much. Forgive us for our short-sightedness. I pray that you would use these experiences, Lord, as we have read today, that you would use these to see that you're using this for our good and for your glory. And that we would learn to trust in you and that you would build up in us a good name in a character that is pleasing to you, that testifies of your glory and your grace and your sufficiency for us all. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.